We're going to start out with the Gospel of Luke this morning. And then we'll move on to the first Kings, which is, a, which is an Elijah story. So we'll start with the Gospel of Luke, the seventh chapter. We're going to be working through the Gospel of Luke throughout the summer, um, hearing of some of Jesus' miracles and um, some of the works that he did kind of in the heart of his ministry. So listen now for God's word to you. That's the Gospel of John. I was like, that doesn't sound right. There's the Gospel of John. Okay. Gospel of Luke. There we go. Chapter 7, beginning at verse 11. Soon afterwards, and that's after he healed the centurion's son, which we, or the centurion's servant, excuse me, that we talked about um, last week, I believe. Soon afterwards, he went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a large crowd went with him. As he approached the gate of the town, a man who had died was being carried out. He was his mother's only son, and she was a widow. And with her was a large crowd from the town. When the Lord saw her, he had compassion for her and said to her, Do not weep. Then he came forward and touched the bier, that's the platform that the man was laying on, and the bearers stood still. And he said, Young man, I say to you, rise. The dead man sat up and began to speak, and Jesus gave him to his mother. Fear seized all of them, and they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has risen among us, and God has looked favorably on his people. This word about him spread throughout Judea and all the surrounding country. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Our second reading is from the book of 1 Kings, which is one of the books that kind of tells the history of the people of Israel, and particularly the time of, of uh, David and Solomon, and all, mostly all of the kings who come afterwards, who did not do such a good job uh, being, being kings of Israel and Judah. This morning is a story from Eli the Elijah section of 1 Kings. Uh, Elijah was a prophet who did a lot of different miracles. Um, and the reason I read the gospel first is you might hear a lot of similarities between Elijah and Jesus. Some of Jesus' miracles made the people think, well, maybe this is Elijah. But we now know that Jesus was certainly something much different than Elijah, much greater than Elijah. We're going to begin, actually, at verse 8 um, this morning. So 1 Kings chapter 17, beginning at verse 8. Then the word of the Lord came to him, that's Elijah, saying, Go now to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, and live there. For I have commanded a widow there to feed you. So he set out and went to Zarephath. When he came to the gate of the town, a widow was there, gathering sticks. He called out to her and said, Bring me a little water and a vessel so that I may drink. As she was going to bring it, he called to her and said, Bring me a morsel of bread in your hand. But she said, As the Lord your God lives, I have nothing baked, only a handful of, of meal in a jar and a little oil in a jug. I am now gathering a couple of sticks so that I may go home and prepare it for myself and my son, 
that we may eat it and die. Elijah said to her, do not be afraid. Go and do as you have said, but first make me a little cake of it and bring it to me. And afterwards, make something for yourself and your son. For thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, the jar of meal will not be emptied and the jug of oil will not fail until the day that the Lord sends rain on the earth. They were in a time of drought in Israel. She went and did as Elijah said, so that she as well as he and her household ate for many days. The jar of meal was not empty, neither did the jar of oil fail, according to the word of the Lord that he spoke to by Elijah. After this, the son of the woman, the mistress of the house, became ill. His illness was so severe that there was no breath left in him. She then said to Elijah, What have you against me, O man of God? You have come to me to bring my sin to remembrance and to cause the death of my son. But he said to her, Give me your son. He took him from her bosom, carried him up into the upper chamber where he was lodging, and laid him on his own bed. He cried out to the Lord, O Lord my God, why have you brought calamity even upon the widow? with whom I am staying by killing her son. Then he stretched himself upon the child three times and cried out to the Lord, O Lord my God, let this child's life come into him again. The Lord listened to the voice of Elijah. The life of the child came into him again, and he revived. Elijah took the child, brought him down from the upper chamber into the house, and gave him to his mother. Then Elijah said, See, your son is alive. So the woman said to Elijah, Now I know that you are a man of God, and that the word of the Lord in your mouth is truth. Here ends the reading of God's holy word for us this morning. I don't think you could ever find a sadder story than Elijah and the widow. Like, even if you watch Lifetime 24 hours a day for like a month, I don't think they could come up with anything worse than this. I mean, this is the stuff that wins Oscars, right? It is the most desperate of desperate of desperate situations. There is no space for anything good. There's very little material, it seems, for God to work with here. But there's even more despair that I didn't tell you about. Before this story starts, we find out that the prophet Elijah, he's actually at the end of his rope, too. He's the last prophet of God left in the entire kingdom. He's being hunted by the evil king and and queen at the beginning of this chapter. He's he's found himself living near this, this shallow lake. He's being fed by ravens, of all things. They bring him bread and they bring him food. But then because of the drought, the lake dries up. And so he has to move on, and that's where he has this conversation with God. Go to to Zarephath and meet this widow and she'll feed you. So we have this starving and parched man on the run, living in a time of drought, which is always this 
period of widespread scarcity in an already arid location like Israel. And God tells him that a widow, a person who, because of the loss of her husband, has no economic support, she has no social structure to support her. She has to wait until her son can get a job and then have means to support them. But apparently he's too young to do that at this point. So in other words, a person as equally desperate or even more desperate than Elijah is the one who's supposed to somehow support him. So it seems like there's really very little room for God to work. Very little raw material here to work with. Can you imagine being so desperate that you're collecting fuel for what you know is your last meal? That your cupboard is so bare that you are completely resigned that you're going to starve to death? This is it. This is the end. We don't have anything else to do but have this meager meal and wait for starvation to set in. This widow has completely lost her will to live. She doesn't see any way out of their situation. She's completely out of options. Death is the only path left. And she seems awfully matter-of-fact about it, doesn't she? I mean, she's made her peace with it. You know, I'm collecting fuel for my last meal, so I don't have anything to give you. She's made her peace with not being able to provide for her son. She recognizes that no one cares, no one's coming to help, so it's time. It's time to just give up. And then comes this annoying little pest asking her for help. I mean, I guess there's always someone worse off than you. But he convinces her that God will provide until the drought ends out of the very same resources that she's supposed to share with him. Her last meal will not be her last meal. It will become many meals. And it does. It's a miracle. You know, in our sort of American Disney-fueled minds... We'd love for the credits to roll right there, wouldn't we? You know, they, they live happily ever after on this, on this jar of meal and jar of oil. And God provides for the rest of their life. Roll credits and everyone go home. But instead, has anyone ever seen the movie Das Boot? It's a German submarine movie from the early 80s. If you haven't, I'm, I'm, just, I'm completely spoiling it for you. So, you know, go home and, and you know, rent it. But I'm, I'm completely spoiling it for you. It's set during World War II. And it's this, just, it's suspenseful from minute one. Because it all takes place in this claustrophobic, cramped quarters of this submarine. You know, tense, really tight camera angles. And this submarine crew, it seems like God has it in for them. Because they just go through disaster after disaster after disaster on the submarine. Probably enough to fill five submarine movies. They go through it all. But they somehow miraculously survive every situation. 
So right at the end of the movie, they finish their tour of duty. Bud knows what's coming up, right? You remember the end? You remember the end? Don't, don't give it away. Let me give it away so they can all hear it. Right at the end of the movie, they finish their tour of duty. And they come back into the submarine base, into the submarine dock. And if I can remember correctly, there's this band playing. And there's like bunting. And, you know, everyone is celebrating their return. But these men, they get great shots of them. They're, they're kind of all standing on the top of the submarine. I mean, they're grateful to be back. But there is like no energy left to celebrate. You know, they're just dirty and exhausted and beleaguered and just happy to be getting a breath of fresh air, but really, they're just so thankful that their nightmare is over. But they're really too tired to celebrate. Their faces just say, you know, oh, thank God we made it through. And just as they're pulling into the dock, this squadron of British planes flies in, bombs the heck out of the whole place, and everyone dies. Roll credits. And you're just kind of sitting there watching this movie thinking, well, huh. Or insert your favorite expletive there. You know, that seems like a raw deal. That's not really fair at all. To live through all of that and then get bombed right whenever you think you're safe. When I read this line from the scripture, after this, the son of the woman, the mistress of the house, became ill. His illness was so severe that there was no breath left in him. That's immediately where my brain goes. I don't know about you, but you know, that's certainly how I feel whenever I read this scripture. You know, well then, that really stinks. That's a really raw deal. What's God doing with that? You know? And much to our relief, that's exactly how the widow and Elijah react too. This woman who like, you know, four verses ago was ready to die, willing to die, willing to throw in the towel. After being fed by the grace of God, she turns into this wonderfully fierce mama bear. She has been out of everything. And God provided. And now her son is even out of breath. There's not a breath left in him. And this woman, who just a brief time ago was so matter-of-fact and comfortable about her death and her son's death, she starts fighting. She gets angry. She recognizes, there's no justice in this. I just helped your prophet, God. What was the point of saving them back there? You know, Elijah gets angry too. God, what was the point of saving them days ago when you were just going to kill the son anyway? What was the point? I'm going to tell you a secret. There are times when, as a pastor, you have a parishioner come into your office or they're on the phone with you and... They're just screaming at you. Why did God let this happen? I don't understand it. It makes no earthly sense. Just when someone was starting to turn their life around, they're in some freak accident. You know, a young, bright, shining star of the community gets taken out by some mysterious illness. 
And as a pastor, you tell them, I don't know why, but I know that you're not alone in your grief. I'm right here beside you. I don't have answers, but I'm right here beside you, and I'm going to keep looking. You're not alone in your grief. And then as a pastor, you hang up your phone or you you close the church door behind you. And then you pull in Elijah. You yell at God. Why did you bring this calamity even on the widow who was helping me? Why? This is a good and faithful servant. Why punish her? (laughs) That level of anger whether it comes from the pastor or whether it comes from a parishioner, that level of anger, perfectly okay with God. If it comes from you or comes from me, it doesn't matter. God does not turn his back because we get angry. God never turns his back. We are the ones who do the turning. We're the ones who turn away thinking that God doesn't care. So what should we care about what God thinks? You know, I doubt there even is a God. We sometimes find ourselves saying, that's where we start to go the wrong way. When we stop having that relationship with God, even if it is one of anger. When we stop having that relationship that things start to deteriorate. But anger at God, perfectly acceptable thing to feel. <clears throat> but this is where our lives usually take a turn away from the Bible story. You know, our anger at God does not always get results. Our anger does not put breath back into the people that we love who are gone. Sometimes it does. But usually, no. Our anger sometimes feels like it just goes up and never comes back down. Even when we scream and beg for miracles until we find ourselves out of breath, we very rarely see miracles. So what do we do? Do we continue to just rail at God until we grow so bitter and so resentful about this one thing that we forget all that God has already done for us? Some people do that. I mean, a lot of people, a lot of people give up on God. A lot of people forget That it was God who gave us the energy to be angry in the first place. That's what the story tells us. Remember, when that widow started out, you know, remember where she was. She was gathering wood for a last meal. She was completely giving up. Her life, her son's life, she's done. God gave her the will to be angry in the first place. God gave her the knowledge that she mattered. She wasn't a nobody. She mattered. God gave her that knowledge 
by feeding her. God gave her that knowledge so that she would fight when she really needed to. She would stand up when she really needed to and not just roll over and give in. Because she could have very easily said, well, I got a couple more days out of him. But she didn't. She stood up. She fought. She railed against God. She railed at Elijah. She demanded justice. God provides for us in really, really, really weird ways sometimes. In ways we don't always understand in the moment. In ways that don't that don't always even feel like God is providing right there and right then. But God promises to equip us for the things that we face. You know, God doesn't choose the equipped. God equips the chosen. That's the promise. God promises to give us the tools and the energy that we need for the things that we're called to do. God feeds us in some way. Sometimes it's completely unrecognizable. But God feeds us before the big challenge so that we have the energy and the will to get angry, to fight for what we need, to fight for what we believe in. God gives us that strength to keep going. People at the end of their rope being given the power to fight for what's right. That describes both Elijah and the widow in the story. People who are at the end of their rope, being given the power to fight for what's right. Even when they feel like they're out of everything. Even when they feel like they're even out of breath. God gives them the energy, the strength, the will to stand up and say something. To stand up and get angry. That's where God is. That's where the grace is. In that moment. When God gives us the energy. Gives us what we need. To make it through that challenge. So as we turn from hearing God's word into living out God's word into the world, the question I have for you then is, where do you see God's grace in your life? Where do you see God giving you that energy? Where do you feel like God wants you to stand up and get angry? Amen.